Hello everyone and welcome. I'm Jeffrey, minister and chaplain with JHE Ministries and today let's continue our Bible study in the Gospel of Luke. Today we start chapter 23, so if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 23 verse 1 and let's get into it. Now we're just about done with this Gospel of Luke. We have chapter 23 today and then after this we'll only have one more chapter left. Now in chapter 23 we have the trial before Pilate and Herod and of course we're referring to Jesus's trial. And this trial now moves into its Roman phase. Now while there was doubtless more interrogations in front of Pilate than is reported here, he declared he found no basis for a charge against Jesus and we'll see that in verse 4. But it obviously did not take Pilate long to determine Jesus's innocence. The larger part of this section deals not with so much the trial but with the difficulty that the Jewish authorities had in trying to convict Jesus who was an innocent man. So let's take a look at verse 1 in our scriptures here in chapter 23. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate said to him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Now let's stop there for a moment, and let's take a look at verses 1 through 2. We have Jesus before Pilate, and then we're going to see Jesus facing Herod. And verse 1 links the Jewish and the Roman trials. We have the whole assembly which is the Sanhedrin. And Pilate was the Roman governor. He was the procurator of the province of Judah. His official residence was at Caesarea. It's a it was a magnificent city that hosted Roman culture, where Pilate would no doubt have preferred to be at the time of Jesus' trial, were it not the Passover season. 
when spatial precautions were needed in Jerusalem against all the civil dis disturbances because there were so many people over this festive time. Now the Sanhedrin's accusation contains three distinct charges. The first one, they claimed he was sub subverting the Jewish nation. And this would have been a concern to Pilate who wanted no internal stripes among the Jews and the Romans. But it was not a matter for Roman jurisprudence. Now the second charge, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar. And the third one was claiming to be a king. And they were more to the point. Now Luke has already shown in chapter 20 verses 20 through 26 that the second charge was untrue. The third one became the key issue. Jesus's responses to the questions that were asked to him by his Jewish interrogators have been understood as being clearly affirmative. And we saw that in chapter 22 verses 66 to 71. Now it is also clear that the word Christ or Messiah was deliberately used to imply to Pilate that Jesus was a political activist. He was a threat to the Roman sovereignty. So we need to take note of the word king that's in opposition to the word Messiah. Now following his appearance, and we're talking about Jesus, who was before the Sanhedrin, Jesus was hurried away to be put on civil trial before Pilate, who was the Roman governor. They accused him of perverting the nation, which means, or rather, of turning the loyalty of the people away from Rome. They said that Jesus forbade Jews to pay taxes to Caesar. And then, of course, they're accusing him of making himself a king. Now, when Pilate asked Jesus, and we're taking a look at verses 3, and I'll go look at 3 through 7 here. But Pilate asked Jesus if he was the king of the Jews. Jesus answered that he was. Now, Pilate did not interpret Jesus' claim as any threat to the Roman emperor. After a private interview with Jesus... Pilate turns to the chief priests and to the crowd, and he says that I can find no fault with Jesus. In Luke's gospel, Pilate clearly declares Jesus' innocence. This point is especially important for Luke, who seeks throughout his gospel and the book of Acts to vindicate Christianity through vindicating both Jesus and Paul in their appearances in court. Now the response from the Sanhedrin is a clever one because it implies seditious acts or seditious actions by saying that the people are being stirred up by Jesus and by his teachings, his unspecified teachings. They never said what his teachings were. But the mob became more insistent. They accused Jesus of stirring up disloyalty, beginning in the despised Galilee, and even 
all the way to Jerusalem. Now when Pilate heard the word Galilee, that was the trigger for him. He thought he had found an escape route for himself, so they wouldn't have to deal with it anymore. Because the city of Galilee was Herod's jurisdiction. So Pilate tried to avoid any further involvement in this case by turning Jesus over to Herod. And it so happened that Herod was visiting in Jerusalem at that very time. Now Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, and Herod the Great is the one who massacred the infants in Bethlehem. Now it was Antipas, Herod Antipas, who murdered John the Baptist for condemning his illicit relationship with his brother's wife. This was the Herod whom Jesus called that fox. And we see that in Luke chapter 13, verse 32, where it says, And he said to them, Go, tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform curses today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Now only Luke records Jesus' appearance before Herod. He had more interest in politics than Matthew or even Mark. And Herod had more of an intimate experience with Jewish politics and with Jewish religion than Pilate did. And for a long time, he had desired to learn more about Jesus. And like Pilate, Herod was probably in Jerusalem because of the Passover and Herod's territory as a local king was under the authority of Rome, and this included Galilee and Perea. Now we see Herod's contemptuous questions beginning with verse 8. Herod was quite glad to have Jesus appear before him. He had heard many things about Jesus, and for a long time Herod had hoped to see some kind of miracle performed by Jesus. I'm sure Herod had heard of many different miracles that Jesus had performed, and he wanted to witness one. But no matter how much Herod questioned the Savior, he received no answer. In verses 9 through 11, we see the Jews became more violent in their accusations, but Jesus did not say a word. He didn't open his mouth at all. So all that Herod could do, he thought, was to allow his soldiers to just manhandle Jesus, to mock Jesus, to mock him by clothing him in, in gorgeous robes, and then they'd send him back to Pilate. But verse 11 probably reflects a certain frustration on Herod's part. He apparently had no legal accusation to make, so he goes ahead and vents his anger by echoing the hostility of the priests and the teachers and puts some fine clothes on Jesus and mocks him. Now previously, Herod and Pilate had been at enmity between themselves. And now in verse 12, that enmity was changed to a friendship. Now they're both on the same side against Jesus, and this unites them. And it's a matter of shame to Christians that while the devil can persuade wicked men to lay aside their enmities in order to do harm, Christians cannot even keep up friendships in order to do good. 
Let's go ahead and continue here in our scriptures with verse 13. I want to read up until verse 25, and then let's go ahead and take a look at them. We're going to be looking at taking the place of Barabbas. So verse 13 begins, Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested and he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Now we have Pilate's verdict here. Innocent, but yet condemned. And in verses 13 to 17, we see that because he had failed to act righteously in acquitting his royal prisoner, Pilate now found himself in a trap. He called a hurried meeting of the Jewish leaders. He explains to them that neither Herod nor himself has been able to find any evidence of disloyalty on the part of Jesus. There was nothing that deserved death. There was nothing that Jesus had done to deserve death. So he proposed to whip the Lord and then let him go. Now, once again, Pilate protests Jesus' innocence, this time in front of the people as well. And Luke seems to be making a significant point by mentioning their presence. Throughout his gospel, Luke has been careful to distinguish the people from the crowd. The people appear in verse 27, following Jesus to the place of crucifixion. And then in verse 35, watching Jesus die. Now once more in chapter 24, verse 19, Luke mentions them as witnesses of Jesus' mighty works. And their first mention in Acts, Luke refers to the people as approving the young Jerusalem church. We see that in chapter 2, verse 47. And in order to placate the Jewish leaders, Pilate, who knows Jesus is innocent, offers to scourge or to whip Jesus and then to release him. Now, as a Roman official, he wanted to treat Jesus as fairly as possible. And this would fit in with one of Luke's apparent goals in writing the Gospel and the Acts, namely to show that Christianity deserved to be favorably treated by Rome. 
And this sorry compromise was, of course, totally unjustifiable and totally illogical. It was the poor, fear-driven soul's attempt to do his duty by Jesus and to please the crowd at the same time. But it did neither. And it is no wonder that the angry priests would not accept that verdict at any price. So the chief priests and the rulers were enraged. They demanded the death of Jesus, and then they demanded the release of Barabbas. Barabbas was a notorious criminal. He'd been thrown into prison because of his rebellion and murder. And again, Pilate feebly attempted to exonerate the Lord. But the vicious demands of the mob drowned him out. No matter what he said, they persisted in demanding the death of the Son of God. They wanted Jesus dead. And Luke provides only a brief statement about Barabbas and his crimes. And for the third time, Pilate protested Jesus' innocence. So again, we see Luke's concern to vindicate Jesus and to vindicate Christianity to his readers. Now in verses 24 to 25, although he had already pronounced Jesus innocent, Pilate now condemns Jesus to death in order to please the people. At the same time, he releases Barabbas to the multitude. Now in vivid Greek, Luke brings the crowd's action to a climax. He shifts attention from Pilate to the people by ending the Greek sentence in verse 23, not with the verb, but with a reference to the shouting of the crowd. Luke then proceeds directly to Pilate's action, who had acted in accordance with the crowd's wishes. Now, having emphasized God's plan and will throughout his gospel, Luke notes the human factor, that Jesus is delivered to the demand of the crowd. Now we move into the crucifixion. We have the king on a cross. Now, in their accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, the four Gospels relate essentially the same series of events, but with varied selection of details and a variation of Jesus' words. Now, none of them portray the physical agony of crucifixion in the shocking details that might have been given. The stark facts are there, but are presented with more of a sober restraint. What was most important was the inner reality of Jesus' atoning death and Jesus' spiritual anguish in being identified with the sins of the world. So let's turn to our scripture here, and let's start with verse 26. Now as they led him away, and this is Jesus, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed Jesus, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. 
Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There are also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now I want to take a quick side note here before I get into the commentary about crucifixion. Crucifixion was Rome's punishment for slaves, for foreigners, and for criminals who were not Roman citizens. It was the most agonizing, the most cruel way a person could have died. Nails were driven through their hands and through their feet, and then the victim was left hanging there in agony suffering, suffering starvation, they had an insufferable thirst, there was excruciating convulsions of pain. The cause of death was not loss of blood and heart failure. Death usually falled in two to six days. In Jesus's, it was over in six hours. When Jesus declared that it is finished and he willfully gave up his spirit. It's important to know the facts of what crucifixion was and how brutal it was to understand everything that Christ went through on the cross for us. And sometimes I think that gets overlooked a lot. But let's take a look, begin with verse 26 here in our commentary. Now, Jesus was required, like others condemned to crucifixion, to carry the crossbar. The wood was heavy, and Jesus was weakened already by malnutrition. He hadn't slept, and the soldiers could press civilians such as this Simon into service. And Simon of Cyrene was from Cyrene, which is a port in North Africa. Now, it was approximately about 9 a.m. on a Friday, and on the way to the scene of the crucifixion, 
the soldiers commanded Simon to carry the cross. And not much is known of this man, but it appears that his two sons afterwards became well-known Christians. But as Jesus heads to Calvary, Luke records an innocent or an incident that expresses Jesus's concern for the fate of Jerusalem. Now, Jewish women had always considered barrenness, not being able to have children, a misfortune. And they believed that children a blessing. Now, in the day of Jerusalem's destruction, however, women would have the horror of seeing their children suffer. And, of course, they would wish they could have been spared that kind of agony. Now, the words that Jesus quotes is from Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, which says, Also the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall grow on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Now, this was a plea for protection, not for quick death. And fire spreads much more rapidly through a dry forest than through a wet one, of course. So Jesus' words in verse 31 warn of a future situation that is going to be even worse than the events surrounding his crucifixion. And we have a crowd of sympathetic followers. They're weeping for Jesus as he was led away. He told them, he, t- he tells these women, these daughters of Jerusalem, that they should not pity him. They should pity themselves. And of course, he's referring to the Hosea, the terrible destruction that would descend on Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The suffering and the sorrow of those days would be so great that barren women, which was an object of reproach, would be considered especially fortunate. The horrors of the siege of Titus would be such that men would wish for the mountains to fall on him. They would wish for the hills to cover them up. But Lord Jesus added the words, For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? And he, he himself was the green tree. And the unbelieving Israel was the dry. If the Romans heaped such shame and suffering on this sinless, innocent Son of God, what dreadful punishment would all the guilty murderers of God's beloved Son? So now we have the weeping at the front of the cross. On the way to Calvary, Jesus says, Do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. Behind these words, we hear the echo of the words the crowd has just spoken. Let his blood be on us and on our children. How these words have been fulfilled through the centuries. So let's take a look at the crucifixion here in verses 32 to 34. Now we see in the procession with Jesus there are also two others. They're two criminals, and they are also scheduled for execution at the same time as Jesus. Now, the presence of two criminals with Jesus emphasizes the humiliation of his execution and perhaps also his identification with sinners 
in his death as well as in his life. Now Luke's narrative is concise and it's effective in presenting the brutal facts. Nor is it surprising that he who constantly portrayed Jesus both as offering God's grace and forgiveness to sinners and as praying is the only one who records his prayer for the forgiveness of his executioners. Now the place of his execution was called Calvary. It comes from the Latin for skull. Many times you'll hear it referred to as the place of the skull. Now perhaps the configuration of the land resembled a skull, or perhaps it was so named because it was a place of death, and a skull is often used as a symbol of death. But the restraint of scripture in describing the crucifixion is noteworthy. There is no lingering over the terrible details. There is just the simple statement, there they crucified him. That the Messiah should die was hard enough to credit, but that he should die such a death was utterly beyond belief. Yet so it was. And everything which Christ ever touched, the cross included, he adorned and he transfigured and he haloed with splendor and beauty. But let us never forget out of what appalling depths Jesus has set the cross on high. Three crosses at Calvary that day. The cross of Jesus in the middle and a criminal on each side of him on a cross. And this fulfills Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12 which says he was numbered with the transgressors. With infinite love and mercy Jesus cried from the cross Father forgive them for they do not know what they do. In the soul of Jesus, there was no resentment. There was no anger, no lurking desire for punishment upon all those men who were maltreating him. Men have spoken in admiration of the mailed fist. When I hear Jesus thus pray, I know that the only place for the mailed fist is in hell. Then followed the dividing of his garments among the soldiers and the casting lot for his seamless robe. Now Luke's wording here in verses 35 to 38 is going to suggest that the people are still passive rather than hostile. While everyone else, even the rulers, sneered. The word saved does not mean that the rulers believed in the claim of Jesus to forgive people, but it alludes to his reputation for restoring the sick and the disturbed. The rulers stood before the cross. They mocked Jesus. They challenged Jesus to save himself if he really was the Messiah, if he was really the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked Jesus, and they offered him sour wine, and they challenged his ability to save himself. And also they put a title at the head of the cross that reads, This is the King of the Jews. We have the taunting continued. The soldiers do a lot of taunting. And although in the other Gospels the offering of wine vinegar 
seems to be an act of kindness. The drink being a thirst quencher carried by soldiers, Luke connects it with their mockery of Christ. It may have been a compassionate act done in the midst of taunts. But we cannot miss the significance of the fact that the inscription of this is the king of the Jews was written in three languages. It was written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. And there's no doubt that this was done in order to make sure that everyone in the crowd might be able to read it. But Christ's church has always seen in it, and rightly, a symbol of the universal lordship of the master. These were the great three great world languages at the time, each of them the servant of one dominant idea. We had Greek was the language of culture and knowledge, and in that realm said the inscription Jesus was king. We have Latin, which was the language of law and government. Jesus was king there. And we have Hebrew, which was the language of the revealed religion. Jesus was king there. Hence, even as he hung dying, it was true that on his head were many crowns. And Luke's record of the superscription over the cross shows the issue as Pilate, Jesus' Roman judge, saw it. The word this is at the end of the sentence conveying the emphatic idea, the king of the Jews. This one, this one is the king of the Jews. The rulers, the Sanhedrin, they didn't like that. They didn't want it said that way, but Pilate was not going to change it. And so in verses 39 to 42, we get to look at the two robbers a little bit here. We learn from the other gospel narratives that both robbers reviled Jesus at the outset, at the very beginning. If Jesus was the Christ, why did Jesus not save them all? But then one of them had a change of heart. Turning to his companion, he rebuked him for his irreverence. After all, they were both suffering for crimes that they had committed. They, they were being punished for what they had done. Their punishment was deserved. But this man, this Jesus, who was on the middle cross between them, he had done nothing wrong. So turning to Jesus, the thief asked the Lord to remember him when Jesus came back and set up his kingdom on earth. Such faith is remarkable. Here the dying thief believed that Jesus would rise from the dead and would eventually reign over the world. This conversation is unique to Luke's account. It reinforces two characteristics of Luke's gospel. And one is the innocence of Jesus. The other is the immediate today realization of God's saving grace through Christ. As elsewhere, Luke focuses on one person in a group. One of the criminals hur hurled insults at Jesus. The criminal's taunt was, aren't you the Christ? should probably be seen as sarcastic. The other criminal recognizes in verse 43 that Jesus is no mere pretender and that he will reign as king. So Jesus' response assures this criminal that he, ne he needs not wait for any future event, but that he would have an immediate joyful experience of fellowship with Christ in paradise today.
This Persian word taken over into Greek symbolizes a place of beauty and delight. It was used to refer to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, and also to the future bliss that the garden symbolizes. Now, uh, Jesus rewarded his faith with the promise that that very day they would be together in paradise. Paradise is the same as the third heaven, and it means the dwelling place of God. He says, today, what speed? He says, with me. You can't have any greater company than that. And he says, in paradise. What happiness could be greater? This story reveals the truth to us that salvation is conditioned upon repentance and faith. However, it contains other important messages also. It declares that salvation is independent of sacraments. The thief had never been baptized, nor had he partaken of the Lord's Supper. He did, in fact, boldly profess his faith in the presence of this hostile crowd that was around and amid all the taunts and the jeers of all the rulers and all the soldiers, yet he was saved without any formal rites. And it's further evident that salvation is independent of good works. It is also seen that there is no sleep of soul. The body may sleep, but consciousness exists after death. Again, it is evident that there is no purgatory. Out of a life of sin and shame, the penitent robber passes immediately into a state of blessedness. Again, it may be remarked that salvation is not universal. There are two robbers. Only one was saved. And last of all, it may be noted that the very essence of the joy, which lies beyond death, consists in personal communication with Christ. The heart of the promise to the dying thief was this, Thou shalt be with me. And this is our blessed assurance, that to depart is to be with Christ, which is very far better. From from Jesus Christ's side, one person may go to heaven and another to hell. So the question for you is simply this, which side of the cross are you on? Both criminals at first joined in mockery. And I want to take a little side note here to look at this penitent criminal a little more. One changed his mind, and in one respect he put the disciples to shame. For two years or more, Jesus had tried so hard to teach them that his kingdom was not to be a kingdom of this world. Now Jesus was dying, and to the disciples this meant the end of Jesus' kingdom. They had no thought that he would come to life again to reign in glory. But not so this criminal. Perhaps standing at the fringe of the crowds, he had heard Jesus' talk of his kingdom. It's possible. Jesus was kind of famous at that time. And though Jesus was now dying, the criminal still believed that Jesus had a kingdom beyond the grave. A criminal understood Jesus better than Jesus' own intimate friends. Now, Jesus surely loved repentant sinners. And as Jesus returned to God, he bore in his arms the soul of a criminal, the first fruits of his mission to redeem the world. Little food for thought there.
let's go ahead and continue just a little further longer here. We have three hours of darkness in Jesus' death. Verses 44 to 46. Darkness covered the whole land, or the earth. The Greek can mean either one of those. And it was from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, which would be from approximately noon to 3 p.m. This was a sign to the nation of Israel. They had rejected the light. Now they would be judicially blinded by God. Now Luke refrains from giving a precise time, but does imply by the word now that the preceding events had filled the morning. There was darkness from about noon to three o'clock, and the whole land could refer to all the land of Israel, or possibly just to that local area only. But Luke does not say what caused the sun's light to fail, nor does he say what significance should be given to this fact. Now, certainly it emphasized the somberness of the event. It may also be linked with Jesus' experience in God's judgment for Elsewhere, the scriptures link it with God's judgment. But Luke states that the temple curtain was torn apart. Doubtless, the one separating the holy place from the innermost holy place. Access to the most holy God is now opened through the death of Christ. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Picturing the fact that through the death of Christ, it was a way to approach God. It was open to all who will come by faith. Normally a person in the last stages of crucifixion, they would not have the strength to speak beyond a weakened groan, but Jesus is able to cry out with a loud voice which were the words from Psalm chapter 31, verse 5, that said, Into your hand I commit my spirit. And verse, or, uh, Psalm 31, 5, we have, You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Now to the Christian reader who knows that Jesus' death was a voluntary act, these words are beautifully appropriate. All four Gospels describe Jesus' moment of death in terse, restrained words. And it was during these three hours of darkness that Jesus bore the penalty of our sins in his body on the tree. At the close of that time, he committed his spirit into the hands of God his Father, and then he voluntarily yielded up his life. I want to finish here with verses 47 to 49 before we leave today, where we have a Roman centurion. He was so overwhelmed by the scene that he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. After Jesus' death, Luke calls on the centurion, uh, which was a, a witness to Jesus' uniqueness. Jesus' words in his gospel, emphasize, as in the trial scene, the innocence of Jesus. The crowd standing around was deeply affected, as were Jesus' own followers, who endured their inexpressible grief that stood at a distance. And Luke gave the names of some of these women from Galilee in chapter 8, verse 3. 
But the whole crowd was overcome by an awful sense of sorrow and of foreboding. Some of Jesus' faithful followers, including women who followed him from Galilee, all stood watching this most crucial scene in the history of the world. With that, I am going to stop there for today. Next time, we'll finish chapter 23 and get a good start on chapter 24, where we take a look at Jesus buried in Joseph's tomb. So be sure to join me back for that. Until next time, and God bless all of you, and keep living Christian strong.